20 years after his death, the story of legendary actor, poet and singer Richard Harris is told in a new documentary film, The Ghost of Richard Harris. It uses previously unheard interviews recorded by Irish journalist Joe Jackson and footage from the Harris estate. Throughout this film, the Limerick man is remembered by those who knew him best, including his three sons, Damien, Jared and Jamie, as well as those who worked with him. People like Vanessa Redgrave, Russell Crowe, Jim Sheridan and Phil Coulter. The film explores Harris's unique and multiple talents from topping the charts as a singer, his acclaimed poetry, as well as his life as an actor whose career spanned the decades, earning multiple Oscar nominations. All of this, however, was often overshadowed by his reputation as, quote, a hellraiser. The Ghost of Richard Harris is now available on Sky Arts and we're joined this evening on Arena by director Adrian Sibley. Uh, Adrian, you met Richard Harris after making your documentary on Anthony Hopkins and you spoke to him at that time about making a documentary about his life. Soon afterwards, however, he became ill and died. Now, 20 years later, 20 years after his death, we get the ghost of Richard Harris. What was it about the man that held your interest you know, you can see why you might have been impressed by him in the very beginning, but it held your interest for 20 years and you held your, you kept your powder dry until now. Why? Well, um, interesting question. Uh, not a terribly simple answer. Um, I was impressed when I met Richard and I would have loved to have made something with him. It didn't happen. He did pass away. Um, but about five years ago, I started talking with Jared Harris, who's an actor himself, very good one, mm. Um and who was bemoaning the fact that he didn't feel that anything that had been done really um, got to the heart of who his father was. And in fact, when we started talking, he was still asking questions about his father. He'd been deeply affected by him. And I found that interesting. I also thought that Richard had been underrated and often the stories um, and documentaries would sort of just go for a basic chronological run through his life with the disappointments um, in, in, in his life as much as his achievements. And I kind of agreed with Jared that we would make something that rectified that and repositioned him as the mm. significant Irishman he was. So if Jared is involved, uh, as you say, his his actor son, Jamie, another actor uh, also involved in another son, and Damien, uh, a director. Uh, so the three sons are involved there. And from the very outset, we get a real sense, both from the archival material and from what the three now grown men have to say, that there was a lot of love and a lot of great tender moments and great parenting and great childhood experiences from the three men now, boys then? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I did think that it would be interesting to see their father through their eyes, although I also felt that it would be interesting to give Richard a voice. And you mentioned Joe Jackson, who was the journalist that um, I got tapes from, uh, the, from his interviews that he'd done over a period of time with Richard but also um, using other source material because he did so many interviews. And I thought the combination of a father talking to his sons and that he actually does talk to them at various times within it um, was the modus operandi of the film. The ghost, it literally is the ghost of Richard Harris. He comes back to talk to them and us. Um, 
and interestingly as as fascinating as ever and putting together what he had to say was um really uh the the way that i drew the sons into thinking about their relationship with their dad and to answer your question yeah they had an amazing time i mean one of the stories i heard that uh, that when he separated from their mother, he bought a place called Tower House, which Jimmy Page, of all people, lives in. I try to get in there. Jimmy Page wasn't playing ball, unfortunately. Um, but the boys were there and they would go for their holidays and stay with their dad. And their dad literally let them play football in the front room uh, with invaluable pieces of uh, art all around. He didn't really care. They just played football. And he would also, this was pre-internet and pre-DVD and all of those things. Um, get, gave them a, a, a 16 mil uh, film projector so they could just call up films from rank and play them. Um, a life of Riley, I think. I think they had a tremendous time, you know, uh, with him, uh, as well as he bought a place called, um, in the Bahamas, he re, re, renamed it Kilkey House, which is the, the town, the seaside town that he yeah. loved in Reverend. the Bahamas. And they would go and stay with him there. So, yeah. I think there there was many very fond memories with with some complicated thoughts too. Yeah, because Jared at one stage, you know, talks about a row they had at Christmas, and and that uh, he he said to his father, "Why are you so angry?" And this comes up again and again. And people who worked with him about the he seemed to have this innate ball of anger that he could just tap into whenever he needed it. But Jared asks him, "Why are you so angry?" And and I, I don't think Richard had an answer to that. And I don't think Jared got an answer to it really by the end of by the end of things. I don't think there is an answer to it. You know, it's just the way that he was made up and mm. you know, he was a complicated character and I think that he didn't understand himself like often most of us don't. Um I found his Irishness really fascinating and a lot of the film comes back to Ireland. I'm the only English guy with the sons, I suppose, who are half yeah. Irish. Yeah. Um, everyone else I work with on, on this is Irish, you know, from my DP to my editor, to the composer, to the producers that I worked with, um, which is great because I really felt that there was a lot of the story that of Richard, however successful he was, and he was, you know, an yeah. actor that did brilliantly and also a, 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 a singer of all things. Um, yeah, we'll come back to the singing. But oft, yeah. He, as you say, he had huge success, financial success, um, artistic success. Yes, artistic failures and I'm sure a bit of money was lost along the way as well. But, you know, there's a lot of financial success and a lot of artistic success. But the very telling quote that stood out for me in the midst of it all, when he asks about... Uh, or when he, not, he talks about what living well means. Let's have a listen to Richard Harris. A little bit of language in the midst of this quite quickly into the clip, in fact. But this is Richard Harris talking about what living well actually means. Living well means being free. It doesn't mean living in fucking luxury. Saying I've got 55 fur coats, a woman saying I've got, I've got three Rolls Royces, 19 cars, I've got a private jet. That is not what I mean by living well. I mean living well is being free, being able to laugh, you got, some, you got a bit of money, yes. I made a lot of money. And my life hasn't changed a bit. It hasn't ruined my taste. It hasn't made me... It hasn't. It haven't, I haven't spoiled myself. And that's Richard Harris there in a clip from the documentary film The Ghost of Richard Harris. And speaking with me this evening is the director of that film, Adrian Sibley. I, I wonder to what extent, Adrian, I mean, he's... How defensive is he there, do you think? Do you really think that he believes that he, he didn't spoil himself? I mean, is he putting aside his 
his difficulties with alcohol, his difficulties with drugs in the midst of all of that? Well, I, it's an interesting thing. I actually think Richard was a very generous man. Um, and a story that I really liked, one of the many that I couldn't use, was that he used to go and drink in the coal hole um, not long before he died. But he was really having a real renaissance as a grand old man of of, of screen um, with Harry Potter and, and Dumbledore. Um, and he'd been in Gladiator and stuff like that, really doing really well. Um, and... He used to trot down to a place called the Coal Hole, his local pub, and he was drinking Guinness at that stage. Not not too much. Mm. You know, it wasn't going wild. Um, and I heard, uh, uh, well, I saw there's a, there's a letter in the Times where um, somebody says that they were collecting, a woman was collecting for the homeless. And she went into the pub and she said this disheveled tramp-like figure came up to her and said, what are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm... I'm uh, collecting for the homeless. And he went away and came back and stuffed a check in her hand and then shuffled off. Um, and he gave her a check for uh, two grand. And mm. it was Richard Harris. And that, to me, is very Richard. Um, I nearly said Dickie there because that's part of what, what we try to do to examine the two parts of him. Well, let's, ex- let's explain I think he that. had a generosity. Yeah, explain that difference between between Dickie and Richard because we, we get a, 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 a quite a, 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 a portion of the documentary is spent in Kilkee and in and around Limerick as well um, talking about those early years where he yeah, was, was Dickie Harris. I mean, I, yeah, I loved going to Ireland. I mean, you know, one of the joys of making this film to spend time with Harris in all his complexity, but also to go back to the places where he haunts. Mm. And Kilkee is one in particular, which is just a fantastic coastal town, you know, just really wonderful. Um, and there, I think, was a mystery, you know, which was that that uh, he used to be called Dickie, and he wasn't an actor. He was a brilliant sportsman, you know, he used to, swim uh, he used to play this game called rackets there's a statue there to him on the cliff mm. um as a champion rackets player sort of local game of squash they play on the beach but also he's a brilliant rugby player i mean you know lendonine who was captain in london irish mentions he could have been a professional rugby player but actually i think he could have played for ireland he was that good um really good yeah and um, there's a scene too where we there's a scene where we see him he still has his young monster. He played for Young Monster once, I think, and he still has the Young Monster shirt on him. And he takes off a, a coat and a jacket and a jumper and, a, and a, an ordinary button shirt. And there, underneath, is the is the Young Monster shirt that that he would never part with. He was very proud of that athletic prowess, and of course, that yeah. Was... But he would have, yeah, he would have played much more if he hadn't um, got TB, which is at the heart of our film. Hmm. You know, he was cut in his clutch his prime as a rugby player that was just the beginning of what could have been a really great career um and he redefined himself and he was dickie harris and he left ireland and became richard harris and richard harris was a very different figure to dickie harris you know but who was a, a boy about town uh, in some ways, you know, always up for a crack. Richard was that. But when Richard started off, people don't really realize that 
he was serious. You know, he was a serious, brilliant stage actor of huge note and significance. You know, he he worked with Joan Littlewood, who was part of a revolution in English theatre. Um, and then he went on to the West End um, and started uh, performing and worked his way up from Arthur Miller, saw him and thought he was brilliant and cast him in, in, a, in a play there. And uh, he was moving really quickly. And he had about five years of being a really yeah. powerful presence on stage. And he started to create this persona of Richard Harris, who is who we all know, love or hate him now. Yeah, and 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 you get a sense that he knew a bit like the Marilyn Monroe story that she knew when she was being Marilyn and when she was just being herself, and and he similarly could become Richard Harris when he needed to do it. However, he had had that success on stage, as you say, that led to success on film, early films with Lindsay Anderson, people who got this Sporting Life, obviously was in there, uh, and they were they were kind of edgy films like this sort of theatre that was happening at the time. Then he went to Hollywood and he. Seems as if he got a little bit disillusioned with some of the films he made in the the 70s. Then we got this version of Richard Harris. Richard Harris, vocalist. Spring was never waiting for us, girl. It ran one step ahead as we followed in the dance. Arthur Park, to this day, would still be in my top five finest records of all time. I mean, it was groundbreaking, and the vocal on that is 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 quite astounding for an actor. And that is the wonderful Richard Harris with MacArthur Park, which was such a big hit for him, and we get a sense of that in the documentary film, The Ghost of Richard Harris. Uh, Adrian Sibley, director, speaking with me this evening. That, I know we had seen him in the musical um, Camelot. He'd had huge success there with Vanessa Redgrave and singing live on set. Seemed They, they seemed that they had discovered something new almost together in that respect. But the, vo- the, the singer side, he could have been a singer if he'd wanted to too, it would seem. I mean, you know, um, my, yeah, yeah, yeah. He He's just got a... Uh, 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 balls, Richard. You know, he was up for doing anything and trying it. And he could sing, but to become a pop star was just kind of like, you know, he was in his late 30s. You you would have thought that wouldn't have been something that he would go for, but he did. And he went for it fully. He's kind of Elvis-like. And of course, Elvis recorded My Boy. You hear Phil Coulter in that clip, yeah. who's a brilliant singer-songwriter himself. And he adapted and, and uh, a song called My Boy and, and uh, uh, Richard recorded it and Elvis heard it um, and recorded it a few years later. And I must say, I'm a huge Elvis fan. Uh, I think anyone interested in music should be. Um, but I prefer the Richard version. I mean, Harris did this amazing mm. thing. He could sing with huge emotion. And there's a similarity between the masculinity in both those guys um, but also the sensitivity of feeling. Um, yeah. And Harris acted that out better than anybody. So if you actually go back and listen to him, he's, he's you know, MacArthur Park is what, what really gets under your skin. And, you know, um, you know, much to my, my, I've got a 15-year-old daughter and she said to me, oh my goodness, when she saw the documentary, she said, I really like it, but can you just cut out all of his music, Dad? Oh, she doesn't like it. <laughs> there you go. She was not up, up for it, yeah, but I was okay. saying, I'm, 
you know yeah. she should be because he, he he was pretty unusual spotify actually say that he's the most successful actor turned singer ever still wow that's an, that's an interesting take on it of course that musical theater side was was in him as well as we saw as i said in, in camelot so it, there was something in there from his acting side as well Later in the, uh, we we see the yeah you talked already Adrian about the kind of the late flowering I suppose which when we get to the field when we get to Harry Potter when we get to uh, Gladiator all of those films I mm. would, would would fit in underneath that and what's what's very um, touching in fact is the way he still had his eye out for for younger actors Russell Crowe was a was a very young actor when talking when performing in Gladiator Whacking Phoenix was in there as well. And this is what Russell Crowe had to say about how Richard Harris was on set and how he, he helped the two of them as young actors. A bit of language in the midst of this clip as well. With Richard and I, it was like he was very open to me, you know, and I was under a lot of pressure on that job, man. I'd never been in something like that where the budget is so big and the logistics are so big. <laughs> live inside this world where there's literally thousands of people. And I knew that Joaquin was having the same kind of feelings that I was having. You know, the scale of this thing, I think, had a, a lot of us feeling that we couldn't connect like we normally might in an actor's environment, you know? And Richard just said to me, well, why don't we get together with him after work? Let's find out how much we care about him. So he did that straight up old school thing, man. You know, we just got together for a drink in the trailer after work. Joaquin reminded Richard that Richard had worked with River and River had come home from that set with all of these stories about this guy. And so Joaquin was going, is this story true? Is that story true? And all the stories are true. And we had a few drinks with him and he started doing poetry for us. And if you know anything about Richard at all, grand poet in his own right, that just made the room just start to glow, you know? And then, you know, Joaquin went home and Richard and I were sitting there and he goes, how do we feel about him? I said, I fucking love him. He goes, me too. Well, let's solve that. So and it was just, you know, it was easy. And then because Joaquin and I showed a connection, then the other actors, they were able to come into this sort of core of gentle camaraderie in the middle of all of this crazy shit that was going on. That's Russell Crowe speaking about Richard Harris on the set of uh, Gladiator and director of the film The Ghost of Richard Harris, the documentary film. Adrian Sibley is with me this evening. Adrian, it covers a, a vast amount of uh, material, a vast amount of new stuff in there as well. We, we can't get to all of it. But one thing that I think we do need to talk about, we get this clip from him where he talks about simply, oh, I drank just because I loved it. And there's no, does he acknowledge that perhaps he had a real problem with drink? Do you think that it was just because he loved it? What do you think was going on there? Well, it's quite hard to second guess, Richard. I mean, you know, he certainly was an alcoholic and he was aware that he was. Um, but it didn't seem to um, stop him. And, you know, he, he there was periods where he didn't drink um, and he was quite health conscious. But I think his appetites were huge, really. And, you know, he returned to it. And um, whether his his answer by saying he loved it, that's what he thought, you know. He, he was of that era where drinking was hand in hand with what he felt was who he was and the masculinity of who he was and 
you know, he was in the company of others that did the same. But actually, Harris, you know, got through it, unlike Burton, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and O'Toole was similar in that they were linked in, in that way. But there was a discipline um, to him. So, you know, although he was a drinker, you know, he could deliver. And it was not as if his drinking you know, was something that that he brought to the set. You know, I didn't get that impression. I actually thought that, you know, he had it under control. There was this period in the 70s where he says it in the documentary himself and, you know, through the tapes that that was part of one of the tapes of the, of, of Joe Jackson, who managed to get a lot out of him. And Joe has got a book out about his time with Richard. They had a very close uh, mm. relationship through um, these interviews, you know, um, and, you know, it was all the better for me as a documentary maker to have that as part yeah. of my palette. Um, so I don't know whether that's an answer, forgive me, but, you know, it's funny. My father was a drinker too, and up till late in life was hiding bottles of booze in the garden. And, you know, and, and some people are, a bad drinkers they they lose their temper and we get into that you know i think yeah. that we deal with yeah. it but but why he did it i don't Hard know time. well listen um it's certainly a fascinating watch and people can judge for themselves uh how he how he justifies or doesn't justify the various acts in at different points in his life but thanks for joining us this evening adrian it was a pleasure thank you very much and uh, i hope everyone enjoys the film That's uh, director Adrian Sibley joining us this evening and talking to us about his film, The Ghost of Richard Harris. It's available to watch on Sky Arts and recalls the life of legendary actor, poet and singer Richard Harris. Creepy, kooky, mysterious, spooky. Adjectives, of course, used to describe the Adams family, but also in a way adjectives that could be applied to the creative output of one Tim Burton. Now these two cultural institutions have been brought together by Netflix with a new series, Wednesday, which focuses on perhaps the most beloved character in the Adams family, if you can love a member of the Adams family, Wednesday Adams. She was, of course, famously played by a very young Christina Ricci in the early 1990s film, centering around the family. Now Wednesday is getting her own series, which takes the character away from her family and somewhat out into the world. Jen Gannon has been taking a look at the new Netflix series and she's with me in studio now. I, it's, look, uh, Jen, it's not the first time that a franchise <laughs> has been rebooted, let's face it. No. This is hardly news. Um, so what's happening here? What are they doing to the Adams yeah. family, which people love the movies and other people even love the series before the movies. Exactly. I think the problem, the issue is like that, like you're saying, everything has to be familiar IP these days to get eyeballs mm. on the screen because you're fighting for space because, you know, there's too much TV out there. So to get attention, they're like, remember this thing that you used to love. And nostalgia yeah. plays such a huge part in TV these days. It's comforting. It's easy. So, you know, with the Adams Family, what has grown up, I think, with my generation is, and I don't know if how many people are aware of that, there is these very intense feelings around 
the Barry Sonnenfeld uh, Adams Family the, the trilogy that was made in the 90s the film starring Angelica Houston and Raul Julia yeah. and I think that's even overtaken as, as, in, as Morticia and, and Gomez. Gomez and yeah. I think that's even overtaken the original 60s series in, in a lot of the public consciousness so there has been this very fervent resurgence in, in, in interest in those films and especially Christina Ricci's performance as Wednesday which is just such a standout performance so with this with what Netflix saying that they wanted to make a, a standalone series about Wednesday herself, I think there was a lot of, you know, trepidation because, especially, you know, due to the involvement of Tim Burton. Now, back in the day, in like the 90s or the late 80s, mm. if you had said Tim Burton is making an Adams Family film, it would have filled yeah. fans with joy because it's such a good match. You know, this man is the grandiose gothic kind of sensibilities and arty sensibilities of Tim Burton matches so well with the story of the Adams Family like in everything like you know uh, Edward Scissorhands and you know Beetlejuice stuff like that you can see and Basically the goth look and the, yeah. look that, the look that he did in his Sweeney Todd all of those exactly. things that, that, that just feed right into the Adams Family I suppose aesthetic palette. Yeah, and but like the thing about it is Tim Burton, his output has waned a lot and the quality of his work over the years has kind of, you know, it's not been great. It's been a lot of CGI, mm. overcrammed CGI, mm. Disney stuff with like Dumbo, Alice in Wonderland. And a lot of people were now kind of unhappy with his involvement because oh, they're thinking, okay. is this going to be the same thing again? And as well, if you're taking someone as beloved, beloved as someone like Wednesday to a lot of this generation, you are, you know... Like it was with Ghostbusters when there was so much controversy over Ghostbusters getting an all-female reboot. People are saying, oh, you're messing with my childhood memories, which mm. seems a little yeah. over the top. Yeah, but well, I suppose, but this that's is the what prob- we're dealing with with fandoms yeah. these days. And well, also, if you're dealing in nostalgia, yes, of course, you're thinking, well, we, we'll tap into the nostalgia mm. to get them watching it. But then you're also going to have to deal with, well, that's not what the I backlash, remember. Yeah. That's, not, that's not the nostalgia I wanted. Let, let's just concentrate on the current one for a minute. We'll come back to the, the differences maybe later on. Uh, where is uh, Jenna Ortega is playing Wednesday here? Yeah. I'm looking very like Christina Ricci. She does. Said. In, but where, where, is, where, where are we at in her life? So she's a teen. She's a 15 year old girl. And she is, when we meet her at the, the beginning of the show, she's being actually thrown out of her high school where she's mixing with ordinary kids because they're bullying her brother and the, the I think it's the swimming team are bullying her brother and, and she ends up filling the swimming pool with piranhas, which is very like the comedy from the 90s film. So I think when people start to watch it, they'll feel like they're in familiar territory yeah. and, it, and, and it has that kind of sense but of humour. But they're playing that almost as a kind of realism rather than a, a They fantasy. are. <laughs> it's not like the campiness. The campiness mm. is gone. So this has got the tone of when Netflix did a revival of Sabrina so Sabrina the Teenage Witch was the kind of 90s knockabout teen you know sitcom and then they changed that completely and they had Mad Men's Kiernan uh, Shipka she was starring as Sabrina and it was this very dark tone to it it was more about you know demonic possession yeah. and devils and that so they're taking this kind of almost that route with it now it's not entirely serious there is a lot of dark humour in it but it's more serious than I think fans of the films yeah. would be expecting Let's have a listen to Jenna Ortega's Wednesday um, talking to Thing the famous yeah, the hand, hand. <laughs> the, hand that, that the sentient hand yeah, and you, you'll hear you'll hear the hand in the background <laughs> crawling across the table um, and she's not too happy with saying him but she's not too happy with Thing which is a I suppose, neutered, neutered, yeah. uh, whatever gender. Let's have a listen <laughs> to uh, the conversation between them, or at least the conversation at thing. 
My parents aren't worried about me. They're evil puppeteers who want to pull my strings even from afar. The way I see it, you have two options. Option one, I lock you in here for the rest of the semester. And you go slowly insane trying to claw your way out, ruining your nails and your smooth, supple skin. And we both know how vain you are. Option two, you pledge your undying loyalty to me. That's Jenna Ortega as Wednesday in the new Netflix series based on the Adams Family. That's not fair even to say based on the Adams Family. Taking one of the characters from the Adams Family and giving her her own series. So, in some ways, Jen Gan, this is a this is a high school drama. With it is. the odd Wednesday Adams uh, as as the central character. Yeah, it's a high school drama with you know supernatural elements. I, I was saying it's like a supernatural coming of age story, um, because we see her moving to a new high school, which is a boarding school, and it's called Nevermore. So it's kind of this school for misfits and outcasts, like she would be. Um, but they're all populated by werewolves and vampires and those kind of ghoulish characters, which is kind of. What I love about the Adams family um, as a concept, as characters, is it plays best when they are kind of uh, up against ordinary America. And you can see, you know, their kookiness and their difference and they're fighting against the norm. And they're, you know, it, it shows the hypocrisy of that kind of life. And that's what's great about the Adams family, I think, with this, because you're just taking Wednesday and mixing the character Wednesday with all these other characters who are essentially misfits. misfits. Yeah. You don't get that satisfaction, the same satisfaction. So it just becomes this kind of supernatural um, high school drama, which is a little bit like the Umbrella Academy, Netflix massively. So I can see why they want to kind of carry on in this vein. It's a bit, it's Harry Potter, like it's Hogwarts. There, it, it, there's a Hogwarts element. Yeah, because there's, sure. there's a big school element to this, the Nevermore yeah. Academy that you, I, I think that's probably mentioned in, in the original series and in the films as well, but we don't spend time there. Like all our time is spent with our yeah. counsellors, with our teachers, with the principal who has to make sure that she doesn't run away. And and with the dynamics within the school itself. That's mm. the story we're getting. That is the story. Now, there also is a mystery plot thrown in that she has to piece together. There's these kind of gruesome killings that are happening all around the school campus. And she's having these psychic visions of the murders before they happen. But she's not mm. telling anybody this. She's keeping this a secret from everyone. And then there's, you know, she's busy in the other half of it, kind of fighting off school bullies and avoiding her very perky sweet mate who's a werewolf called Enid. So for me, all the drama like has changed the nature of the character of Wednesday and that's the real difference of it because she's not just this sardonic, morbid schoolgirl with this kind of macabre intentions. She's almost like a superhero now because she's, you know, taken down the bullies with these kung fu kicks and she's fluent in several languages and it really is that they're trying to probably appeal to the Marvel audience 
in another way yeah. by by changing her in, in essentially like what what the character is about. I suppose. Well, it's for those who are feeling a bit nostalgic and thinking, oh well, this is going to be the series <laughs> for me. It sounds from what you're saying that it isn't the series for those who are feeling nostalgic. Let us feed that nostalgia with a little bit of Christina Ricci, little highlights from her as Wednesday Adams across those three films that you yeah. mentioned, Jen. What are you, darling? Where's your costume? This is my costume. I'm a homicidal maniac. They look just like everyone else. I don't want to be in the pageant. Don't you want to help me realize my vision? Your work is puerile and underdramatized. You lack any sense of structure, character, or the Aristotelian unities. Young lady, I am getting just a tad tired of your attitude problem. Is this made from real lemons? Yes. I only like all natural foods and beverages. Organically grown, with no preservatives. Are you sure they're real lemons? Yes. Well, I'll tell you what. I'll buy a cup if you buy a box of my delicious Girl Scout cookies. Do we have a deal? Are they made from real Girl Scouts? (laughs) uh, uh, Christina Ricci there as uh, Wednesday Adams. Uh, We also heard the voice of Christine Baranski, Peter McNichol. uh, And that was... From the films, wasn't it? Uh, I think the Adams family and Adams family values. But you see, in the, in immediately in the midst of that, you do get this idea of we kind of were on the side of the Adams family yeah. because they were against the little annoying girl scout. Exactly. They were against and and you know the kind of hypocrisy of small town America. I and think that that's what people tapped into. They definitely did, and I think the problem with Wednesday is that conflict is removed. You just have this completely different world that she's a part of, and the and then the mysteries unraveling within that world. And then also like by taking away the family, you've, you're taking away the natural comedy of it as well. Mm. I think we have... Do a, we get much of them? I, I saw most of the first episode and we didn't get much of the family at all. Two two episodes you get with the, they're kind of just in it as cameos almost. And it, it's terrible because it's a waste of, you know, great talents like Catherine Zeta-Jones is playing Morticia. And she vamps it up mm. in every scene she's in. She is chewing the coffin right out of the screen. <laughs> like, And it's great to see her back. And yeah. I love watching Catherine Zeta-Jones and Louis Guzman is playing Gomez. Now they don't have obviously the chemistry of Angelica Houston and Raul Julia but there's still um, there's still something there that like is a natural comedy yeah. aspect to it that the, I think the show maybe needs more of. And the other thing I do have to ask haven't watched as I say I haven't got to the end very end of the first episode so I may be satisfied when I get there but I don't I haven't heard yet doodle dee dee haven't heard it nod. once. <laughs> Later on there is a nod to the iconic finger click there is now it's done in a very different way but I have to say there also is a nod to the Adams Family films because Christina Ricci is in it she makes an appearance as a botanist a teacher in Nevermore which I absolutely loved I love just to see ah, her again right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones is really good in it as the school principal um, the principal of Nevermore Larissa Weem and she's trying to keep Wednesday in check so I mean it has a great supporting cast it looks visually it, it is stunning it has that cosy autumnal kind of feel, a New England feel, like something like Gilmore Girls has. It has that really timeless quality that those Tim Burton films used to have. So I think fans will kind of enjoy the look of it maybe more so than the content. But as the high high school dramas go, it it is, you know, something different. Is that ultimately what, is it a high school drama for, I suppose, a young adult audience? Do you think that's the target audience? It's it's going to, I think that what they want to do is reconfigure and reintroduce Wednesday to a new generation. uh, And that's what this is about. Will you watch it just out of nostalgia, though? I'll probably go back to the films, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, that's Jen Gannon speaking to us about 
Wednesday, the new Netflix series, which lands on guess what day of next week? Yeah, got it. Wednesday, November the 23rd. Last Thursday, Martin Scorsese, one of the most talented, celebrated and inspirational film directors in Hollywood history, turned 80, would you believe it? Held as the most gifted director of his generation, a generation that includes the likes of Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Scorsese was for a long time overlooked, if not cast out, of Hollywood's establishment, seeing his films either as the fail at the box office or misunderstood by critics or snubbed at the Oscars. Most renowned of his gang for his gangster pictures, Mean Streets, Goodfellas, Gangs of New York, and his Oscar winner, The Departed. He has also made several other uh, pictures, including religious pictures such as The Last Temptation of Christ, Kundun and The Sa- and Silence, which offers meditations on spirituality. Little surprise then that in his youth, Scorsese studied for the priesthood. The seminary's loss was cinema's gain. And here is a reminder of some of those gains. My first uh, association has always been with moving images, film. It's the most magical moment when you hear the whirring of the projector and you hear the clicking of the film going through. I remember visiting some relatives of mine when I was about four years old and this older gentleman had a 16mm projector and they screened a black and white cartoon for me. And it was fascinating to see that the images were coming from this machine, this puff of light, this hot light and the, the sense of the, um, the dust and the, uh, the beam. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. You talking to me? You talking to me? Jake LaMotta and Jimmy Reeves in the Cleveland Arena. LaMotta is undefeated, but he's well behind on points. Ron Skoll has taken a lot of money. My name is Jordan Belfort. I'm a former member of the middle class raised by two accountants in a tiny apartment in Bayside, Queens. Now, I put the sweat of my life into this thing. I got my reputation all rolled up in it. And I have stated several times that if the Hercules fails to fly, I will leave this country and never come back. You come across certain kinds of films. They make you look at life a different way. They make you look at being human a different way. And then there's that rarest of films where, when you see it continually over years, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years, you still see more in it. Martin Scorsese there talking about his inspiration with lines from Goodfellas, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Wolf of Wall Street and The Aviator, as well as music from The Rolling Stones, The Ronettes, The Crystals, Dropkick Murphys and the Italian composer Pietro Mascagni. With us to discuss Scorsese's work is Stephen Benedict. Stephen, I suppose really when it comes to Scorsese, there's an awful lot, let's let's face it, to to get to. But we we heard Mascagni and various other composers compositions in the midst of that uh, montage that you gave us so he, t- he takes these really well known tunes mm. really well known even like everybody knows that Cavalleria Rusticana <laughs> but he, he kind of makes them it, 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 he treats them in such a way that when you hear the tune you start thinking about 
his film. Yeah, he changes the definition of the mm. music. And I think that that's something that's overlooked. He has an encyclopedic knowledge of 20th century American music. He, growing up in Elizabeth Street in Little Italy, he heard a cacophony of different music playing through the windows and the corridors and the kitchens and the stairwells. You know, so he had Neapolitan songs, and he had opera, big band music, jazz and, and pop songs. So when he was developing, he had such a knowledge that when he was developing the script for Goodfellas, he actually was choosing the songs to go with a particular scene and editing them in his head on the beat of the music before he did so. So it's not so much how, it's not so much the songs that he chooses, it's how he chooses mm. them and how he uses them because he adds in phenomenal layers of texture. I mean, if I can give you just an example from Casino, um, that stars Robert De Niro's Ace Rothstein. He's running the casino and he starts dating a lady named Ginger McKenna. Now, to use the film's terminology, Ginger is a hustler. And while Ace explains to us exactly what Ginger does, on the soundtrack, we heard the song Heart of Stone because mm-hmm. that's Ginger's character. But the version of Heart of Stone that he plays is by the Rolling Stones. Now, who's playing Ginger? Sharon Stone. Okay. Now, it's, it's a joke, but the thing is, that's how easily he can shuffle all the cards. Yeah, he knows how to do that type of thing. But you mentioned Elizabeth Street there and, and Little Italy back. Mm. So we're not talking about a nice, gentle neighbourhood. There, no, there, was, there was a lot going around, uh, on around him. And it was Little Italy. Is, is he of Italian extraction? Does he is actually Sicilian. The... Actually oh, right. Sicilian. And the name Scorsese is actually means Scott. So somewhere along the line, his ancestors are from Scotland. All right. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, growing up, as you said, it would have been a tough place to live. He was asthmatic as a child, so he didn't play out in the streets with the other kids. He was actually inside a lot, looking out the window, looking down on the streets. And that's a a visual image that he uses, Uses he repeats again. again. And so, um, you know, his parents were not educated. And they worked in the garment district for for decades. So there there was, money was scarce. There was no books at home. So he spent the time um, watching movies. Then he went to the seminary at the age of 15. His parents were delighted. This is an education for the young boy. But then he came Italian home. Italian family and a, a priest in the family. Oh yeah, perfect. Like, like uh, Ireland at the oh, time yeah. in the 50s and 50s, I guess. And he comes home one day and he says, I'm leaving the seminary. I want to study, study cinema. And his parents, he overheard them that night talking in their bedroom thing. is Martin mad? There's something wrong with Martin. But the thing was that um, we've got to understand how insular that community was. To marry out didn't mean marrying out of Catholicism or marrying out of Italian roots. It meant marrying someone from a different block. Yeah. And so the, fortunately when he went to the seminary he had a priest who told him there's a world outside of Little Italy that you need to go and see Martin, young man. And that's what he did. He, he, he left that. And so as a result, thanks to that priest, you've got a cinema that's Catholic with a capital C and Catholic with a with lowercase c. Yeah. It's universal and very, very personal. All right. So we have a clip in fact from a documentary that Scorsese made in 1974 about his parents, Italian-American. It gives us a real insight to where he came from and the culture and that whole idea of the importance of family mm. and not going against family. Let's have a listen. I wanted to start, I wanted to, you, you were going to tell us about the sauce, you were going to show us how to do the sauce. Well, what should I say? Well, you can, you're, going to, you're going to get up and show it to us, but I wanted to know who, you know, how did you learn it? Well, what do you ask me? About the sauce. Uh, how, who, who, how did you learn how to make sauce? Well, I'm supposed to be talking to you? You could talk to yes. me, you could talk to them, it doesn't matter, I'll be over here. Shall I mention your name? No. Doesn't matter. You want? What should I say? You want me to know? You want me to tell you how <laughs> my the how how I learned how, how to make yes. so- how did you learn well, that, make sauce? Well, why don't you ask me the question? Don't you hear that then? <laughs> I mean, if you would ask me a question, I would answer. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it now. Right. Did, I want to know how you learned how to make sauce. Who taught you? Who taught it to you? How long? I mean, how many years? How many years you've been doing it? And I want to see you do it. Well, you know, when you first get married, you're really not much of a cook. I watched my mother make sauce. I watched my mother-in-law. I got a lot from my mother-in-law, a lot from a family. She got more than my mother, to, from my mother than my mother. See, there he goes putting his mother in again. 
What did you want me to say? That your mother taught me how to cook? No, 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 no. That's the Scorsese family. family yeah. I mean, that's dialogue straight out of 999 Italian-American movies, isn't it? Exactly. And because of Scorsese, Scorsese really, really fervently believes in, real, in the reality, presenting authenticity mm. and sincerity and making very, very personal films. And above all, I think when you listen to some of the dialogue in his films, you can actually hear, his films are so personal, you can actually say to yourself, that's actually a Scorsese line that he holds dearly in real life. If I can think, if, if you mm. give the opening line in Goodfellas, let me pretend that it's Martin Scorsese's delivering the line. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. And that's what he's really saying. That's the way he invests in the story. And, you know, it's, he's got to understand he makes it, finds it very, very hard to make some of the films that he makes because the subject matter is, is not mainstream. It's not very, very commercial. So he's constantly fighting against the studios to get the movie made. And so he's constantly a huge struggle. If it can give you another line of dialogue, from the last temptation of Christ, Jesus is agonising on the cross and he cries out, I, w- I should have tried harder. I, sh- I didn't fight hard enough. And that could be Scorsese talking about as an artist railing against himself, I didn't fight hard enough to, to, to deliver mm. on the subject matter. I'm failing the subject matter. It also really strikes me when you listen to that clip featuring his, his, his mother, the idea of answering a question with a question that we often think is an Irish trait. There it is very much an Italian <laughs> trait as well. Um, in the midst of all of this, it's hard to think of a Scorsese and a cocaine addiction in the 1970s. Where did that come out of? Well, yeah, well, he's he's obsessive, okay? Very, very passionate and very, very intense. And that, that mm. addiction came out of a movie that he, a failure of and musically made in 1977 called New York, New York. And his addiction was so severe that it threatened his life. He ended up in hospital with a deep internal bleeding. And it was actually Robert De Niro who went to him and said, listen, I've got this script here called Raging Bull. I want you to make it. And so it was his way of getting back into the industry to revitalise himself, revitalise his life and to find a new addiction, you know, to step away from from the drug addiction. Um, What about the quote that we heard at the beginning of that, Stephen? Hmm. Um, Scorsese talking about watching a film. Again, again, this is a kind of an addiction really, isn't it? You know, um, 30, 40 times or or watching it again and again over 30 or 40 Hmm. years. Probably 30 or 40 times. Well, I can identify with that. that. I, can, I can see that. I mean, look, I've seen Apocalypse Now 49 times in the cinema. In the cinema? In the cinema. So that's a Scorsesean trace, if that's the adjective. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, but this idea about, about uh, how does he apply that to his work then? I mean, is it about perfecting things? Well, I think it, the first thing is that his films are incredibly densely, te- densely layered and textured. And there's so much going on in, in a film at any one time. You can't get everything the first time you see it. You've got to go back and watch it again and again. And having done that a lot with his movies, you know, I think he's, he, uses to, he uses genres to smuggle in a lot of stuff. And I think for me, the gangster pictures are not gangster pictures. It's just the milieu. Because the theme of the story really is about greed and materialism. So if you think about Mean Streets, which was his first gangster picture made in 73, that's in low-level mafiosi in New York's Little Italy. For Goodfellas, which he made 17 years later, he brings it out to the suburbs. The houses are bigger. These are middle-class gangsters now, mid-ranks. And so the clothes are more expensive. The nightclubs are more salubrious. They went to the Copacabana. And then when he goes to make Casino, he goes across the country to Las Vegas on a massive scale. He's using the widescreen format for this. And we're talking about the the higher echelons of the the mafia management, the guys who run the casinos. And so the wealth is vast. We're talking about silk suits and fur coats and diamond encrusted jewellery. And then for me, if you roll them all together, you get the real gangster movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. For me, then you've got 
um, mansions and yachts and private helicopters. It's all fueled by money laundering operations that are now international. So Scorsese takes us to London and Geneva. And it's not a mafia condition. It's a human condition about greed and materialism. And for me, the thing, real thing there is that the audience are watching the film. We've got to admit to ourselves, we want that mansion. We want that helicopter. Yeah. yeah. So what about the seminary that he went to? <laughs> And the reasons possibly that he went there, who to know? So he left and went and studied film at New York uh, University. Hmm. What about that uh, proselytizing that he would have been doing as a priest? Is he doing a uh, does he do a similar type of proselytizing? Well, that's very, it's a very good question. Education? It's a very good question because you know before he after he left college studying film, but before he broke into the industry, he actually went back to teach. And one of the things that he was teaching was that cinema is an art, and an art has to have a conscience. And one of the students that he had in his class was Oliver Stone. Oh, right. And if you think about the political movies that he's made, Scorsese firmly believes in the idea that film is not just for entertainment. It Part of it must have a conscience. And that's what I'm saying is for his gangster pictures, it's all about greed and materialism. And he's saying, stay away from this because it's not a good life. So there's no glorification Absolutely within his, none. No, his but here's, gangster pictures. Here's the thing. It, because he's, he's of that generation, the 60s and 70s, it's quite radical. He's not going to give us a very, very traditional moral story. He's got to put us in there to hang out with the sinners and to feel the temptation ourselves and then resist and step back. Exactly what we do when watching Goodfellas for sure, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, uh, thanks for uh, Stephen for coming into us to, to share his thoughts on Martin Scorsese and we'll finish off with a word from the man himself speaking about the future of cinema and how important it is uh, in understanding, how important it is to understand how film works. One has to begin to, I think, reach younger people at an earlier age. I think you really need to know how ideas and emotions are expressed through a visual form. Now that, vo- that form could be video, you know, or film, but it still has the same rules and it still has the same grammar. And the grammar is panning left and right, tracking in or out, intercutting a certain way, the use of a close-up as opposed to a medium shot. What is a medium shot? What is a long shot? All these sort of things. And how do you use all these elements to, to make an emotional and psychological point to an audience? Martin Scorsese there and Stephen Benedict help us celebrate his 80th birthday last Thursday.